0: Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking. No topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Tendai Vicky likes to say that innovation is just about management, but it's a different kind of management than business leaders are probably used to which is why many of them need help with the process. That's why they call Tendai, an associate partner at Strategizer and the author of the book, Pirates in the Navy, The Corporate Startup and the Lean Product Lifecycle. And his speciality is helping large companies innovate for the future. On this episode of Future of Tech, Tendai breaks down what the future of innovation looks like. And he explains why innovation starts at the top with a leader who is willing to do things a little differently. Tendai says that leaders who want to bring innovation into their organization need to be comfortable not knowing which bets will be the winners and instead find a way to create an environment where winning ideas can emerge on their own and prove themselves as worthy of investment. Tendai also gives a warning about entrepreneurship and explains why the number one thing you have to look for in an entrepreneur is not how creative or brilliant they are, but how well they can form relationships. And he reveals the four key questions that innovators need to be asking if they want to have any chance of success. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs Technology page on LinkedIn.
1: Welcome, Tenday Vicky. Today's episode will be all about innovation. I'm very happy to have uh, Tenday with us. We've met uh, nearly a year ago, maybe slightly more. Tenda is the author of several books Pirates in the Navy, How Innovators Lead Transformation, The Corporate Startup, and uh, Lean Product Lifecycle. And um, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you. A real great pleasure to be here. Good to see you again. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, you know, surviving all the interesting things that are happening in the world.
1: So let's start maybe with uh, some background. Can you share with me, you know, how it all started? How, how did you find yourself in technology? How did you find yourself involved in uh, in tech?
2: By accident, really, right? I started my career as an academic. I have a PhD in psychology. So I spent a lot of time, like almost 12 years, just as an academic teaching organizational behavior. And then I just happened to, um, I went to a conference and I met Really wonderful lady there. Her name was Jennifer Everhart. She worked at Stanford University. So she invited me over there to do some collaborative work on psychology. I used to do psychology of group behavior and organizational behavior and things like that. And it was when I was there, I spent like a year and a couple of months there. One of my children was born there during that time. And it was uh, being at Stanford, being in Silicon Valley, being in that atmosphere, drinking all of that in. It kind of moved me away from what I was supposed to be doing. I ended up, like, not even really doing what I went there to do. I was spending a lot of my time hanging out with startup guys and Facebook and Google and all these spaces. So it was
1: really cool. Yeah, it's enough just to travel in those places and to see, um, you know, the the lifestyle and compare it to a psychologist sitting on his sofa uh, with boring hours of uh, tedious uh, people. So it's much... uh, Now I can understand, okay?
2: Yeah, and it's really interesting because saying I'm at Stanford... Made people want to talk to me, even though I had nothing of value to offer them. So it gave me access to things I would have never seen, because people just assume you can't ignore a guy from Stanford. They could be the next great founder. <laughs> well, I wasn't any of that. I was just a guy that was like paying attention and interested in technology and and startups.
1: So where where did you where did it all start? So um, you started as what as consultant, or you moved to a uh, to full time?
2: So what happened was one of the one of the things that I was exposed to. Was Facebook's first accelerator fund. It was called FB Fund and it was run by Dave McClure. And there is where like Zimrite was there, right? And you know, Zimrite is now Lyfts, right? Uh, right, Cheering Up. So those guys were there with John Zimmer. Uh, TaskRabbit was there. So just being around kind of like that atmosphere, I thought, right, when I get back to the UK, I'm going to start my own startup. So when I came back, the first foray into this was founding a startup with my best friend. And we called it Task Source. And it was supposed to be like a platform where people can post like odd jobs they want done. And then like people sign up. But yeah, we didn't do very well with that. Like it turned out I have no idea what I was doing. (laughs) and (laughs) So we didn't make any money. After like a year or two, we kind of shut the, the platform down. And then like just sort of thinking and reflecting about what happened is when I started sort of, you know, reading around Lean Startup and all that. And that's what then moved me to consulting really over like, you know, a few years.
1: And what made you focus or concentrate um, in innovation and the whole science around it? What drove you to there?
2: So, yeah, I it's all chance stuff, right? So after my failed startup, right, I was, I was giving talks about it just to, I mean, because I was part of the startup community in London with Sal and Rob Fitzpatrick and the Lean Camp community. So... And just doing that work, one day I was invited to speak to Pearson, which is a global education company, about startups and how the startup methodology works. And I gave the keynote. And then two weeks later, they invited me to help them co-design their process. And then in doing that co-design, they invited me to join the team full-time and join the team full-time and stay with them for three, four years. That's where the book, The Lean Product Lifecycle, is actually based on my book, The Lean Product Lifecycle it's based on that work. We did at PSN describing that work and, and, and putting it in like, like a framework. And so that's, that's how it happened. Like it wasn't even like, I didn't intend for it to happen. But because I'm a former academic and I was working in these organizations, as I was learning how these things work versus what doesn't work, I was recognizing patterns. And so in recognizing patterns, I was then able to kind of structure it in some sort of methodology and toolbox that, that kind of you can use. And that's what Pirates in the Navy then became.
1: So let's let's uh, make sure that our audiences, is uh, so guys or girls that are listening to us um uh, it's not that uh, one day you roll a dice and suddenly you uh you find the uh, the right roll it's uh, hard work and and still uh, obviously coincidence is there but um uh, good so i wanted to start maybe with uh, with asking the obvious question What's the uh, secret sauce behind companies that uh, are able to reveal innovation or to have a a good innovation practice within the, the company or the corporate as a whole?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. So let's start with the opposite of your question, which is, what do the companies that struggle with innovation do wrong, right? And the the thing that we've noticed the the most, especially as I started working with Strategizer, is that it really falls into one problem, which is the leadership don't get the distinction between how you run your core business and how you drive innovation. So all the mistakes around innovation are often centered on leaders using the same behaviors, metrics, and tools they use to run their core business and applying those to how they drive innovation. And so once you do that, now you're in the area of like asking for five year business plans, you know, asking a team who don't know who the customer is, whether they're, how they're going to scale their idea. You know all of these kind of wrong questions that lead to that. So all the mistakes that happen are because people are taking execution practices for running your core business and applying them to exploratory work, which is innovation. And so the companies that get it, and companies that do it successfully, those companies that understand that they somehow, some way have to foster this distinction between execution and searching and run those two things in in using different methodologies, toolboxes, questioning, and investment practices.
1: Help me out here. I'm a CEO of a company. I cannot accept someone coming to me and say, look, this is innovation, there is no ROI, I don't know what's going to happen. Just let me experiment versus the other guy that is, uh, you know, like a methodical person that always has, you know, his finance uh, in order and, and have the, uh, the tables in place. So, what should I do? How, how should I, you know, I, I do want to innovate. I read probably some books. What's the equilibrium?
2: Yeah. So, you know, you've been, maybe you've even been to Silicon Valley on a startup tour, on an innovation tour. Yeah. And now you want to innovate. Yeah. So, I think one of the biggest myths around, innovation management is that innovation is some kind of black box right it's a it's just like just sort of give me a chance to do something and if I find something cool I'll come and tell you about it just give me the money and leave me alone and that's exactly what we don't want innovation teams to be doing because if I'm a leader and I have a guy who's saying give me money and leave me alone versus a guy who's telling me like I've got all these numbers that I can promise you I'll give the guy just with the numbers right exactly that just makes sense especially because my job is on the line. I have to report to the market. I have to report to the board about what I'm doing with the money. Like all of these things really, really matter. And so what we often say is innovation is management. It's just it's a different form of management that's driven by different set of tools and different set of questions. So the number one principle that we bring to the table is that as leaders, we have to embrace the concept that we ourselves cannot choose the winning ideas on day one. Instead, what we do is create the context in which the winning ideas emerge. And the best way to find really great innovation ideas is to invest in a lot of ideas and then track the progress that those ideas are making and then only double down investment on those ideas that are showing traction and progress and stop those ideas that are not. Now, the only way you can invest in a lot of ideas is to make small bets. You can't make large bets. And so what we say to leaders is make multiple small bets and then set the standard by which each one of those teams earns their next level of investment. And by setting that standard, right, it allows you to then start to govern your investments mm-hmm. in innovation. And by putting that governance process in place, you can then see what works versus what was, what's not working. So it's not really spray and pray. It's more like really deliberate small bets, track progress, double down investment on only those things that are working. And then over time, scale. So in terms of ROI, when it comes to innovation, you don't measure ROI on a per project basis, because if you do that, you just drive yourself crazy. You have to measure ROI on a per portfolio basis, on a portfolio of ideas. Like if you say we invest in 12 ideas in this cohort of ideas, what is the return on the portfolio? Because we know that from the portfolio, six of them we're gonna have to close down because the teams couldn't find any value. Three of them will give us mediocre returns. And only three of them will give us outside. Okay, that's not 10. They're 12. Yeah. Three of them will give us outside returns. I'm trying to check if my math is working. Right. And so you have to measure the returns on the portfolio. So it's a different sort of mathematics of kind of, of, kind of managing that. Right?
1: Good. I think this is a good practice. And um, if you looked at successful organization, is this the way they were practicing it? Like... Uh, throwing a team into like 10, 12 ideas, and then, you know, cultivating the ones that are uh, more successful and, and continue evolving through those?
2: So it's funny, right? Here's another way to frame it if you really want to know that this works. If you thought about it as R&D, what I've just described is exactly how it works. <laughs> and people are comfortable with that because, because they understand that R&D and technology works that way. Some of the stuff is just scientists playing around. And some of the stuff will be useful technologies that will become useful. Some of the stuff maybe we'll kind of sit around for a while and then somebody will say, oh yeah, let's use this for something else like 10 years down the road. So we understand that with R&D, that we invest in a whole bunch of ideas and only a few of those become the ones that become successful. But somehow when it comes to business model innovation, we become uncomfortable with applying the same principle. We start to pull back because once it comes to business model innovation, we're like, well, you can make a business plan. So you can tell me exactly how much money I'm going to make. And so that level of discomfort is what we, we find that you know, we need to move leaders away from. So some of the really great companies that we've been working with, for example, Bayer, the pharmaceutical company, or uh, Bosch, right, the, the great manufacturing company, we've built, we've helped them build the innovation process that goes in cohorts like that, right? So Bayer has a an accelerator program they call the Catalyst Fund, where they invested in you know 10-12 teams every six months, I think, and then they would see, like they would invest like an in initial 50,000 euro per team, and then they would see like which ones of those teams are actually making progress, stop the teams that are not and then double down investment on, the, on those that are.
1: To an extent, it's very similar to the VC model. You know, they are investing in 20 companies, 10 of them are mo- moving to the next stage, and then five to the next. And then eventually they have one of 16 or one of 20, which will, you know, hit the uh, unicorn and then later on. Uh, so it's very similar.
2: Yeah. So Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures, right? is a venture capitalist. He says he works with the one-third rule, which is a third of his investments will fail. A third will bring mediocre returns and he'll make all his money on the remaining third. And that's a guy whose job every day is to pick winners because he's just getting pitched ideas all the time. Meanwhile, a CEO in an established company who only probably sees like four or five innovative pitches a year thinks that they can go, that's the one. I'm going to put 2 million in that one, right? Which is kind of weird. It's kind of like you don't even have enough experience or exposure to know which innovation ideas are going to work or not. Meanwhile, the people that do have a lot of exposure are telling you that the best way to do it is to make small bets and then see what's working and then increase invest on those teams that are showing traction. So that's what we try and encourage people and, and, and companies to do. Sort of, we call it active portfolio management or innovation portfolio management.
1: And probably part of the success is also the organization or the people that are driving the, the innovation coming with your specific background. How would you characterize the leaders that you need to have there? Probably this is not the uh, the ordinary. You will not put there a CFO that will kill it probably uh, immediately. You you need some some different uh, behavior within the initial core team.
2: Yeah. So do you know what's really funny, about Avishai, is that in my experience, I found that CFOs are really cool. Like they get the concept of returns from a portfolio.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll say it again. The CFOs are great <laughs> because. For sure, my CFO is going to listen to this podcast, <laughs> and I still need a budget, so you're right.
2: That's really funny. Okay, but because people tend to think that people in finance are kind of biased, but I think people in finance have one major frustration if you allow them to open up, and their major frustration is almost over half the people that promise them returns never bring the returns they promised. Like if you really like sit down with CFO and like put them on a couch like Sigmund Freud and say, yeah. tell me the thing you hate the most about your job. Like, man, yeah, these guys just make up the numbers and then they burn all the money, right? So then the question becomes, what if, and that's what we all say with CFOs, what if you people didn't make up the numbers? What if you gave them very small investments to go and actually figure out the right business model and then bring to you validated business models that you can then invest in more? Wouldn't that make life easier? And then they're like, yeah, that makes sense. But then they hit the harder question for them in terms of practice, which is how much money would you be willing to part with for a team that doesn't have a business plan? That's where they're the hard. And then, so in some of the conversations we were having at Pearson, for example, we eventually landed at 50K. And that's why you see a lot of these innovation programs, they tend to give these teams in the early stages 50K because that's a, a number that a CFO is comfortable with. Like, okay, let's let the team play with that. But after that, you have to bring me something that's
1: much more useful that I can then invest in. Got you. And um, Earlier, I've asked you about the CEO and how, how he needs to handle it. Now, let's take it from the other way around. I'm an entrepreneur in nature. I'm somewhere, you know, uh, a developer in a large corporate. How can I, as an individual, push a new idea into the enterprise? How can I make sure that it will happen and not lose faith and, and, and you know, go out? What do I need to do?
2: <laughs> you need to get a new job that's what you need to do so,
1: <laughs> for sure Thank you. after this comment about the CFO yeah.
2: So the, so the struggle with entrepreneurs I found two struggles with entrepreneurship movements from the innovation side the first struggle is a lot of entrepreneurs I meet are actually not really authentic, like they just want to like play around, mm. they want like space. they just want to do like innovation theater they want to do sticky note stuff have idea jams and hackathons and all these things but they're not really paying attention to value creation. And that's what frustrates leadership sometimes, because it's just like, so you guys did all this cool stuff in your lab, like, but what is the actual thing that is bringing returns that you've created? So we tend to push innovators to really be genuinely authentically interested in discovering customer value and business models that work for their organization. So that's one half. Of it. The other half is the entrepreneur that tries to pick up all this brash behavior from Silicon Valley, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, I'm a pirate, whatever. You're kind of walking around the organization and, and sort of winding people up. And my comment for that is, you're not Elon Musk. Otherwise, if you were, you would be working in an established company You'd be running SpaceX. So you're not Elon Musk. And you don't work in a company full of idiots. Like the concerns that the so-called MBAs have about risks and compliance and legal, those are valid concerns. You cannot treat those as bad things that are stifling innovation. The real job of the entrepreneur is to work collaboratively with everybody in the business to drive value. And so the best entrepreneurs are those that really understand that there's no innovation inside the large company that succeeds without other colleagues from other divisions touching it, like sales and marketing, legal and compliance and finance. So the question is, how do you build those relationships in a way that then allows you to sort of practice innovation in the in the right way. So beyond being creative and innovative and all this, the number one psychological profile of the really great entrepreneur is political acumen.
1: Really?
2: Yeah, and, people, and nobody talks about this, right? People just focus on the agile and the hacking and the coding and, and, and all this stuff. It's like, well, yeah, sure, you can do all that if you want, but if the, if the ultimate goal is to get the thing out to market, if that's our goal, then political acumen is the number one characteristic of the successful serial entrepreneur, the ability to build relationships.
1: Very interesting. And 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 the team around him, should it be like a form and kind of uh, taken from different units? Or can it be like uh, an organism that is being... Uh, Addressed and, and working with this individual or individuals, or should we like form a new unit in order to make it happen?
2: So there's two parts to driving innovation, right? Say. there's the part where you're a team and you're working on a product, so that's one piece. And then there what we call the innovation management teams, almost like the the entrepreneurial function, right? And that's the their job is to create innovators. So the distinction we make is if you're an innovation person are you working on innovations or are you working on developing innovators? And that, those are two career paths that people have to always make sure that they're making a distinction. And, and what tends to happen is a lot of innovators don't make that distinction. And so they end up like one time they're working on a team, working on something, then they, can come, then they move on to negotiating with legal. But what we often encourage large companies to do is to have a small team, maybe four or five people, whose job is just to build the innovation ecosystem, to build the innovation practice make sure the right tools are in place, right? And the difference, here's how you know the difference. Let's say I'm an innovation team and I I want to do something and I have to negotiate with legal and compliance to be allowed to do it. So as I go into that negotiation and legal and compliance are telling me all the things I need to do, et cetera, et cetera. What is my reaction? Do I focus on making sure my idea goes through or do I make sure that as I negotiate with legal and compliance, I I want to make sure that my idea goes through but also that other teams that come behind me don't have to run into the same problem. Yeah. And so that's the difference between like the pioneers that are building the roads to build an innovation practice versus the innovators just into the, in their own innovation. And so the creators of the innovators, the innovation management team, that should be a function that's going kind to of permanent small team. And then they support the, the teams that are working on, on products and services to try and scale that.
1: Gotcha. Now, let's go back to this uh, large corporate and to the, uh, you know, the CFO, CEO. He wants to to do those things. And you mentioned some of the things that are kind of uh, an ordeal, you know, hackathons and stuff. What other than that he can do to cultivate real innovation? Yeah,
2: so two parts to that, right? The first thing is that I think that as leadership, we need to set the strategic space the worst kind of innovation leadership is where, you, is where you tell the teams, well, you're the innovators, go do something cool, right? Leaders that spend time really thinking about what are the outstanding questions, key trends, challenges we're facing that we think innovation can help us resolve, right? And then make those really explicit and make those clear as guidance to the innovation team. So that's the first thing, like very clear strategic guidance about where the team should be working. You know, like we don't, We don't invest in car washes over here. We invest in in these specific sorts of things, right? With that canvas, the next question then becomes what resources are available, especially time, because a lot of companies have a lot of money, but they don't have time for their people to do the work. So, you know, what, what sort of resources are available for teams to use to explore these opportunities that you've identified? And how will, in terms of innovation boards and investment criteria? Can those teams access those resources? If leaders make those two things explicit, they're already much further ahead than like 90% of the companies that are around in the world right now.
1: Interesting. Now, did you like analyze and, and can share with us different behaviors when it comes to? The psychology effects of, of innovators during the years, do you see? Or, or are they the same, like 10 years ago, five years ago, and today, the same phenomena?
2: So, what's interesting, I think, just from experience, right, not through like research or, or analysis, the shift that I've noticed has been in leadership. I used to spend a lot of my time trying to convince leaders that they need to do more innovation inside their organization. And that used to be the argument. No, know, why, why do we need to do that? I mean, we can just acquire stuff, you know, that's kind of the stuff that kind of responses that I used to get. But over the years now, I'm no longer involved in that fight. Now, I'm more involved in, we've tried this so many times, we've brought in this company or brought in that team, et cetera, et cetera, but we're still not seeing any returns. What is the problem? What are we not doing right? Yeah. And that's where the psychology is now, trying to figure out, like, what, what, how do you actually build a repeatable process? We've had one or two successes. Maybe we launched an application that, really, that did really well, but now we don't know how to repeat that. What is it that we need to sort of put in place in terms of infrastructure to allow innovation to now become much more repeatable?
1: Attention is there. You just now need to uh, funnel it into the right direction.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Now... Usually when you look into innovation, is it only, you know, the organizational aspects or are there also external factors which might make an innovative idea successful or, uh, or you know, fail?
2: Oh, yeah. So that's really important. So one of the things that when we're working with, this, with specific teams, right, like specific innovation team, we ask them to concentrate on answering four questions as they do the innovation work. The first question is desirability, which is, you know, does anybody want this? Who are the customers? Are they willing to pay for the value, et cetera, et cetera? The second one is feasibility, right? Do we have inside our own organization the capability to create this value proposition? And then the third one is viability, which is, can this be done in a, profit, in a profitable way? So those three things people know about already. Desirability, feasibility, and viability. IDEO has been talking about this for a while. But a strategizer, that we added this one element, the fourth element, the fourth element that sounds like a title of a movie. We added this fourth element that we call adaptability. And adaptability is about can this idea scale? Like once it hits the world? Like what needs to be in place outside of the organization to help? Does it fit its context? So if you think about let's say Tesla and the charge stations, right? Like, you know, can Tesla scale as a company? It doesn't get permission from cities and politicians to put charge stations in places, And so the question for adaptability is what things need to happen in the external world that will help this idea become successful? And so teams have to be thinking about that, especially as they get close to finding something that works.
1: And how do you, when you want to foster such an idea, how do you inject the concept of competition or you know, what, the people understanding what's out there the people revealing, you know, the, uh, because maybe you have a great idea, but, you know, 10 other uh, companies or individuals are already on it. So how do, how do you cultivate this part?
2: So what we do with teams when we're working with them is the process that we call design, which is come up with your idea and design it and do it as if you're right. Like, we're not going to challenge you. We might push you in terms of how breakthrough or inventive your idea really is. So that's cool, right? That's part of the innovation ideation process. There's no pressure there. But once you've done that design piece, we move on to the second layer of our conversation, which is the testing piece. And we lead testing by asking one question, which is, "Great idea! We really love how this looks." And if there are any leaders listening to this, this is the question that you need to ask your team: "A great idea! I love it, but can you just tell me, please, what are all the things that would have to be true about the world for your idea to succeed?" Right? Just asking that question forces innovation teams to flip, to start, you know, critiquing their own idea. So I don't have to, as a leader, say, I don't like it because of X. I don't like it because of this. I don't believe this, et cetera, So would say, no, fine. Like, I can't pick a winner, but I want you to tell me what are all the things that would have to be true for your idea to succeed? What are all the things that have to be true about customers and their needs? What are all the things that have to be true about our capability as an organization to take this to market? What are all the things that have to be true for us to be able to do this profitably? What are all the things that have to be true about competitors, regulations, <laughs> macroeconomic factors that would actually help your idea become successful? Can you just go and write down one by one all the things that would have to be true for your idea to succeed? So we give the teams time to do that. They might spend a couple of days capturing all these ideas. And then once they're done, then you ask a second question What evidence do you currently have for each one of those things that those things are actually true? Great, and then the team has to say well for this one we don't have evidence for this one we have some for this one we don't have etc etc and you go okay fantastic what are you now going to do to get that evidence and what is the smallest level of investment you need from me right now to give you the space to go gather that in and then they get that initial early investment and then they go gather that but that's what then makes them go find out are there 10 other people that are already working on this do customers want to pay but what you've done is you've directed the team without degrading their idea, you've given them a chance to validate it through just reasonable questions that you ask as an innovation leader.
1: My next question is kind of a mixture between something you wrote and uh, something that I was thinking about, you know, is there specific wordings that someone needs to use when he wants to address you know his teams or or uh, you know fellows to uh, to create this uh, spirit of innovation? Specific, you know, um, you know, phrases or do's and don'ts when you're approaching your team?
2: Yeah, so I don't know about, I don't know about words. I think it's more like if-then scenario, right? So, and everybody's watching. So, so your teams are watching. So, so let's take you, for example, Abishai, right? You got a few direct reports. And trust me, before they come to talk to you, they all sit down and go, oh yeah, we're about to see Abishai. Abishai likes to see things in this way. So let's make sure that we are making sure that we're presenting this way. Actually, I typically ask these questions. So Let's make sure we're presenting. So every leader, your direct reports, they spend all their time figuring out what sorts of ways of approaching you impress you, right? Yeah. So let's say one day you surprise them by flipping out, just like losing it, like getting really angry about a team not bringing evidence of customer needs before they pitch you an idea. And then the next time you flip out about like, why are you designing a business model that looks exactly like the business we already have? And then the next time you flip out about, you don't need to keep pretending that you're succeeding when it's when, when the idea looks like it's going to fail, it's okay to fail. I'll celebrate your failure. I don't want you to pretend to be successful. Like the things that are, as leaders, we reward and celebrate end up becoming the behaviors that our teams show around innovation. Right? And so over time, as people start to figure out what sorts of things to bring to you and how to approach you, if you're asking the kinds of questions that foster innovative behavior, you will start to get that behavior from your team.
1: Yeah. And also, I think that um, the fact that there is not specific, you know, list of things that you're always expecting and and you're steering and challenging the team to to get out of the comfort zone is also, uh, I agree. And I'll write it down as, as maybe as the, the second thing uh, that I need to do, you know, after that.
2: <laughs> you need to apologize with we first. That's what you need to
1: do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll do that and then I'll uh, start. With, yeah. Can you share maybe some experience working with, you know, big companies or enterprises going through such processes and, you know, not necessarily by name, but, you know, they were here. And this process brought them to, to what? So what, what can an enterprise expect after going through you know, such a drill or a process?
2: Yeah, so let's take uh, the work that we're doing at Pearson because I, I, can, I, I can talk about that because we published the important life cycle. So when we first started doing the work, if you wanted an investment in any idea, you had to write a 30-page business case. And what often happened that's what happens when you write a 30 page business case. What often happens is you got the maximum amount you asked for approved 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, or whatever. So, what we did was when we first started doing the work, we tracked the average size of investment per idea that the team had been pitching. Right? And so, we kind of tracked it just as a metric. And it was always in the millions because the teams would be working on making sure they get all the money they need. Once we introduced this process that we call the lean product lifecycle, where we were saying to leaders and boards, you invest a small amount, 50,000, and then double down investment on only those teams that are actually showing progress. The first thing we noticed was the average size of investment collapsed. It went way, way down. Like it went from like 4 million to the tens of thousands, right? But here's the, the thing that was even more surprising. Was the number of investments went up. So the organization was now making more bets. They were now increasing their chances of success because they were testing and investing in more ideas. So it's a it's a very sort of paradoxical thing that happens in an organization, which is you know, the average size of investment goes down. So investment innovation just got cheaper, but the number of bets you're making goes up, which means you've increased your chances of finding you know, that outsize return. And so that's what, that's one thing that we just noticed and we were able to visually show it to the, to the organization. It was really cool. That's kind of one of the few things we're kind of proud of yeah, with the work we did.
1: When looking into innovation, do you see different behaviors from different industries?
2: I think you see similar behaviors, right, across like a spectrum of behaviors, but then you see that certain behaviors are exaggerated in other industries versus others. So for example, I work in pharmaceutical companies a lot. And you see that there's a lot of compliance and regulation and stuff, right? They're really paying close attention to that. And that's probably similar for sort of banking as well. And then you move to other places where they're more focused on competitors and making sure that they're keeping up with, you know, you move to sort of fast moving consumer goods. You know, they want to move fast and create you know, new variations. of. So you see similar behaviors, but... The only like various things are exaggerated depending on, on where you are. And you have to deal with those things. You have to deal with those things differently.
1: And the same question Do you see different behavior of innovation when we look into regions in the world? Like a specific region is more innovative than other or a specific area, or a specific, uh, I don't know.
2: So culturally, you will find specific parts of the world that are more entrepreneurial than others. But when it comes to large companies, I haven't seen very much difference. The one place in the world that has surprised me in terms of large companies and their ability to innovate is, is China. That's the one country where large companies just are just willing to do more, right? They're just less conservative. And you would expect culturally that they would be because it's a conservative culture overall. But in terms of like business, like the large companies in China are much more willing to take risks and build ecosystems, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have, I have a colleague called Greg Bernada who, you know, studies like how companies, especially in China, rather than act like a homeowner and just improve your own house, they act more like a mayor. You know, they are focused on not just their company, making their company better, but also on uplifting the, the whole ecosystem by creating different things because they're not, they're just not there, right? So they're building all this infrastructure themselves, they're building their own payment systems. They're building their own logistics systems. They're building their own. So they're actually doing all this like crazy stuff. And then they end up with like unique, unique companies. So people might say like, you know, Alibaba is the Amazon of China, but Alibaba is not the Amazon of China. I mean, they're only similar on the e-commerce side, but the other stuff that Alibaba has invested in makes it completely different. So that's the one part of the world and maybe because they just don't have any of the historical baggage that we have about what companies should do. That's the one part of the world where I've definitely seen that large companies are willing to take more risks. But outside of that, things that have just become a little bit similar.
1: Do you think that you know artificial intelligence will come to a stage that the uh, machine will start innovating new stuff for us?
2: So if the machine is learning, the machine can innovate. In fact, if the machine is learning and adapting how it works, from the base of the learning, the machine is innovating.
1: Already innovating, you're saying.
2: Right. Because that's that's what's happening, right? It's optimizing itself or changing how it's functioning because of what it's learning. So yeah, the machine is innovating. The the real question will be, can a machine engage in transformational innovation? Because right now it's more efficiency innovation, maybe a little sustaining innovation, right? Sort of optimizing and making things more efficient. But can it invent something from a business model perspective that's completely different from where you started it. And for that, I'm not, I'm less optimistic, right?
1: Yeah. You can only speculate as as all of us probably. In your current role, what exactly are you doing, you know, uh day in, day out? You're going into companies and helping them innovate, or you're looking into the processes or everything altogether.
2: So three main things that I do daily. So the first thing is I, I work a lot with Alex, lots of all the to design tools. Yeah. So we're really, really thinking about like, what are the best practices that we're seeing around innovation and how do we standardize that? Because the one thing we've learned in all our work is nobody will debate with you about the philosophy of innovation for too long. Like they'll, they get it. The question is how do you get that done? So we want to give people tools that they can use to do the work. And often People agree with you in terms of innovation, but then when they go back to their organization, the tools that are there are execution. tools. So they end up using tools that are not fit for purpose to try and do something. So we're trying to build a lot of the tools and processes. So we're doing a lot of that. And then, of course, a lot of writing and content production. And then a third part of the work is then, like, we get a lot of inbound client requests, come and help us coach our teams on how to do this and do that. Can you help us design, like... um, you know, our process for finding ideas, making decisions, investing, et cetera, et cetera. We call that innovation ecosystem building. So that's a lot of, a lot of work we do as well.
1: And are you practicing innovation as well within the company on your own?
2: Within strategia? Of course, yeah, because we also have our own products and services. I mean, one of the things that we're really focused on, and this is Alex Oswald's vision, is that he wants it to be technology-enabled services. So we're building a, t- a technology platform, right? Uh, the, the strategy, either application, which the people can go on there, design their business models, value propositions, capture their hypothesis, run through experiments, track their metrics, all in this one platform, and then get access to content as well, where they can learn how to do things, all on this like cloud academy, one one sort of platform, and we're and we're building that out. We're not yet ready, but the goal is to say to companies, we don't want to be those consultants that are always around, like you always have to rely on us for stuff. We want to help you build capabilities. And then leave you with the technology to drive your own innovation programs yourself.
1: This is to an extent addressing the question what needs to happen in order to succeed?
2: Exactly, right. Yeah. And, we, and so, I mean, one of the articles I wrote is it says how to, how to stop relying on consultants as you try and drive innovation. And so the question becomes how do you use the presence of consultants in your business to build the capabilities that then allow you to do this yourselves? Because I really believe that the question for contemporary business in the world that we're living in right now is entrepreneurship. Like, how do you drive entrepreneurship with innovation within your organization? I'm sure the contemporary question 200 years ago was, how do you get a consistent accounting system working? Or 100 years later, how do you get a marketing function and drive marketing within your organization? I believe that the question now is, how do you get the entrepreneurship function built? And so in building, and, and we're trying to help companies build the entrepreneurship functions. Because we believe that that's going to become just as important as finance, marketing, sales, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Obviously, entrepreneurship exists in every startup because otherwise it would not start. But at what stage does it uh, end and it become a corporate that needs someone to guide in through uh, what innovation is all about?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's interesting, right? I guess, you know, there's a a lot of contemporary startups that have become successful somehow managed to maintain the entrepreneurial culture. So Amazon has managed to maintain its entrepreneurial culture. Facebook is going to manage And, and so is Google. So I think that there's two things, right? Steve Blank talks about this a lot. There is the part where like the founder gets fired because now it's time to systematize the company to make sure that it, it lasts for a long time. So we want less chaos. And so if the founder does get fired, that's when you start to lose some of the entrepreneurial culture. But the, those companies where the founder has figured out a way to do both like really build a a systematized organization on the exploit side and still sustain some of that entrepreneurial behavior on the the exploration side. Those are the companies that have been able to maintain that entrepreneurial culture.
1: Great. Tande, we are almost reaching the end and I would like to ask you some personal questions. So um, what's your ambition? Where do you see yourself, you know, in like uh, three years' time, five years' time?
2: So what I would like to do now is I want, I'm trying to explore a different question because I suddenly discovered that the work I do it really addresses. I mean, we're talking about companies, but really, companies don't innovate, right? It's the people in them, that innovates. yeah. And so, what I've discovered is that the work I'm doing really speaks to the problem of success. Like, I know that the world is full of like all sorts of self-help gurus that help you lose weight, budget, save, get out of debt. Like, we're trying to solve people's problems, right? But uh, there's very few people that I know that are focused on the problem of success, which is you're doing so well, but the fact that you're doing so well is actually the reason why you're going to fail. And so the complacency that comes with success, uh, the, the hubris, the ego that comes with success, that's really the reason why sometimes large companies can struggle to innovate because of the human comfort. Right, The reason why we tell people make hay while the sun shines is because that's the hardest thing to do. When the sun is shining, you want to go to the beach? You don't want to make hay. <laughs> and so that's really where my, my, my thinking is now. How do, you, how do we coach leaders and, and really successful people to not rest on their success, but continuously think about how they can get better, even if they're like the, the best at whatever they're doing?
1: Looking at everything that you achieved so far, are you pleased in the, in the place you are in today? Are you happy in what you're doing?
2: I am pleased, but I'm mostly surprised. Right. Like if I like 10 years ago, when I woke up on a random Monday morning, I was not thinking that this was this is what I was going to be doing. I assumed I was going to be a college professor writing loads of papers and speaking at conferences and and, and that. And where I've ended up is a total surprise. But I'm very happy with with the work I do. I think especially by joining Strategizer that I found a nice good spot to build the next the next stage of
1: my career. Great. So it was a real pleasure having you with us.
2: Thank you, Avishai.
1: I hope you enjoyed it as well. I did a lot. Hopefully, you know, uh, we'll see one another uh, again soon after the uh, flights will be uh, back again. Yes, no,
2: no, no. I would love to be back in Tel Aviv. It's one of my favorite
1: places in the world. So I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Tunde.
0: Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlin, directly on LinkedIn.